Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Greg Matheson. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. This edition of Inside Music Cast takes us into the mind and music of a true native Southern Californian, where at a very young age he was playing piano, and by high school he was learning harmony from one of Stan Kenton's principal arrangers. Fast forward through a career that has spanned three decades, and you'll find a master arranger, producer, and session player who has left an impressive mark on many musical genres. You'll find his music genius injected into hits for Faith Hill, Randy Travis, Christina Aguilera, Tina Turner, Donna Summer, Barbara Streisand, The Manhattan Transfer, Tony Basil, Larry Carlton, Helen Baylor, and Andre Crouch. In the jazz scene, his highly acclaimed Baked Potato Super Live recorded with Toto members Steve Lukather and Jeff Percaro, along with Pops Popwell from the Jazz Crusaders, shook up the music scene as one of the freshest live jazz recordings in history. It still remains as a must-have among musical aficionados to this day. His jazz collaborations continue to this day. Whether performing live, in studio, or even on television, our guest also continues to be in high demand internationally. Inside Music Cast welcomes the master of the West Coast groove, Greg Matheson. Hey, Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. All right. Greg, I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about your musical influencers in your life. The people that really made the difference in, in your musical development? I mean, you know, the word's out that you were heavily influenced by Miles Davis. I mean, who wasn't? But when you look at Miles, uh, what hooked you? You know, was it his style, uh, his attitude? What I mean, The era that I liked was the early 60s with, uh, and the band with Herbie Hancock and yeah. uh, Tony Williams and uh, uh, Ron Carter and George Coleman. There's a, there's a, a two-album set that's, that one has the ballads and one has the up-tempo tunes mm-hmm. and i think one is called foreign more and i forget what the one with the ballad is called mm-hmm. um and this is what happened before that all the rhythm sections you know you start it's a swing tune and you just go ding 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 and the tune would stay there mm-hmm. and it wouldn't move and there wasn't there was a little interplay between the the rhythm section and the soloist and then when, the first time I heard the, that album, that Four and More album, and especially the ballad album, mm-hmm. they'd start out as a ballad, and then they'd go into, then they would change, and they'd go into a bossa nova. Gotcha. Then they'd double time and go into, you know, swing real fast. And the fact that they were all listening to each other and that there wasn't that restrictive time that used to be, you know, uh, in the 50s, where yeah. you couldn't change the tempo, you couldn't double it up. It was always the same. That's what really, you know, excited me. And, and that's what I try to do with my band at the Baked Potato. Because yeah. mm-hmm. every time we play the tunes, they're completely different. They start <laughs> out the same, but 
Sometimes they go to funk. Sometimes they go to Latin. Sometimes they go... I try not to uh, restrict anybody from the interplay that can happen. Mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, that's what gets me off. Yeah, that's cool. Hey, before I, we even ask another question, we're going to uh, make a contest for our listeners, and we're going to have them listen to the podcast and see how many times the name Baked Potato is mentioned in this, in this interview. <laughs> cool. That's cool. <laughs> well, okay, then you have, you have to also include the, the word spud. Yeah, right, no right. doubt. That, 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 yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we true. call it the spud. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Um, you know, speaking of influences, I know Miles Davis was a, a big influence, but even going back before that, did, were you influenced by anybody in your family? Did, did you have family members that were um, that were musicians themselves that, mm-hmm. that had an impact on your life? Okay, so here's the short history. My, <laughs> my father was a trombone player okay. Okay. who loved bebop. Oh. And um, uh, he was 17 and had to go to World War II. Okay. okay. So he had to stop, but he always loved bebop, mm-hmm. and um, so he um, uh, he came back to Los Angeles after the war, and tried to make it as a musician. Got married, had me, and um, and so that kind of stopped his career. You know, he had, he went to work to, uh, at at Lockheed. Okay. So my my uh, you know the longest or my first memories of of, of music is me standing in front of this. A uh, Heathkit speaker that he built. Oh yeah, <laughs> and listening to uh, Charlie Parker, uh-huh. listening to Dizzy Gillespie, listening to uh, cool. um, uh, Thelonious Monk, mm-hmm. um, and so I was exposed from. It's, I mean, my earlier memories from with, with all this jazz, and uh, so that was a big inspiration. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, uh, I have to say too that my mother was the one that. M- made me play the piano. I mean, you know, when I was eight, I had to come home and practice. You know, mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I used to cry. I wanted to go out, you yeah. know. You're eight years old, you want to go out, out and play Army or whatever right. it was on the street, you know. <laughs> right. And uh, in reality, I'm kind of living my father's dream, you know. He lives through my experiences. And when I go on the road, I call him every day now because they're getting old. And, mm-hmm. you know, I tell him, tell him what happened at the gig and how the gig went and you know he wants to know what the room looks like and what's right. the city like and what's japan like or what's you know england like and you know how how did the you know how did how did everybody play and right. you know and um so i have to give a lot of credit to my parents yeah did your dad ever get a chance to come out and check out your shows he does he has yeah um he hasn't in the last three or four years he's not getting around real well yeah and he appreciates what I'm doing, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a little more on the rock and roll side right, than, okay. he, than yeah. what he likes. But mm-hmm. what he says to me uh, is, uh, Greg, you can play, but he says, I still got ears, which means that mm-hmm. he can, you know, still, appre- you know, he's got the ears to listen. And uh, sure. he also, uh, he, he, he did this great thing um, in the early 80s. Uh, every day he would put a tape, uh, cassette tape on, like a, one of those hour and a half cassette tapes, yeah. and tape um, the f- radio station here in town. And now um, he gets th- these tapes out, and there are hundreds of them, mm-hmm. and he puts one on every day and lets it loop. That's and cool. so he's listening to the radio that was in the 80s, which was a, l- a lot hipper. I mean, they were, they were taking a lot more chances. You know, they right. were playing Miles and playing a lot more bebop. Mm-hmm. 
than they are now in LA, and it's and it's uh, are everywhere. It's real interesting <laughs> to hear, and then it's, it's also interesting to hear these these commercials out of the, uh, the 1980s. Yeah. You know? Right. Well, that's yeah. wild. It seems as if that would be an interesting. I mean, just to hear live radio today that was recorded back in the eighties. I mean, the nuances of the music and the playlists. I mean, that that's that must be pretty interesting just to listen it, to that. You know? It well, is, and it's great because every time I go go over there, he's got another one on. You know, yeah. and radio is is was more local then than it is now. now Probably, it's, yeah. You know, it's now it's. Uh, Sometimes your uh, jocks aren't even in your city. It's all, you know... Uh, well, right. It's all the Clear Channel stuff. Right. Right. Amazing. Anyway. Hey, listen. In, in 1982, you got together with Jeff Percaro, Steve Lukather, Pops Popwell, right. and you, of course, did your famous Baked Potato uh, recording in L.A. Right. And, these, and it, was, it turned out to be a series, and these gigs were recorded, and you released an album called Baked Potato Super Live. You know. Right. Well, you know, I had, I had no idea. I, I was like 14 years old when, <laughs> when that thing was recorded, and wow. I had no idea that those recordings even existed until the late 90s. And, you know, I was, I was you know, trying to find a copy at that time was impossible, and thanks to, to the Internet and, mm-hmm. and to the fact that you guys decided to reissue, reissue the recording on CD. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we finally got a chance to listen to it. And, man, it's an amazing performance. And I think if you, anybody that's really interested in, in this style of music or really is into that West Coast, right. you know, exactly. thing, I mean, this is a cult classic among mm-hmm. those, you it, know, people who follow is. that style it, of music. You know, and yeah. I just saw... Let's see here. I saw Steve Picaro, um at at Lucather had a, uh, a birthday party oh, at Baked yeah. Potato yep. a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. and a couple months ago. And Steve came up to me and uh, and said, "Man, it was so great, you know." And uh, he talked about that album because all the family used to come to the gigs. Mm-hmm. And he and he he said something interesting. He says, "You know, that was." He said, I'm so glad that you did that record because that was, you know, I think it's the only record where you really got to hear Jeff, you know, like at the top of his form, yeah. mm, not yeah. just in a studio project, right, you know, right. on this live, on this live uh, album. And, um, and, um, and Paige was there, too, and mm-hmm. he said the same thing, you know. Yeah. Uh, we reminisced that night. But there's a funny story to this. I, see, through the 70s, I started playing with my own band, and I had met Larry Carlton. Mm-hmm. So I, I was making records with Larry Carlton. Cool. And, um, and my band kind of varied in, with uh, personnel. So the, the first band actually had Larry Carlton in it and not uh, Steve Lukather. Hmm. So then uh, Larry, first, you know, Larry went on the road, and I, I decided not to, uh, to go on the road with Larry and kept that band together. And Steve became the guitar player. Okay. And so uh, uh, it changed the voice of the band, and we wrote new songs and stuff, and, and it evolved into, into what you heard. And did what we heard that probably did it necessarily rock a little harder than what oh, you yeah, had with Larry? Yeah, that's what I had figured. <laughs> <Definitely>. Obviously. <laughs> What about that earlier material with with uh, Carlton? Did you guys ever record any of that? No, some of it is a, a, the, uh, are, are some tunes that I still play on uh, the later baked potato records. Okay, um, and some of it was Larry songs. Okay, okay. Because um, I see, I started playing with Larry. There, were, there was another club called Dante's, and I started playing with Larry. I think in nineteen seventy seven, hmm. and with Jeff. And actually, there was some great gigs because I played. With Jeff, with Robin Ford, uh, uh, let's see, Leon Russell did a gig with us. Really? Um, on the keyboard, I'm, uh, my favorite keyboard player, and I'm 
Joe Sample. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, Joe. Uh, I there would be two keyboard players. It would be Joe and I. You know, and he'd be playing Rhodes. I'd be playing organ. Uh-huh. Um, and there were great gigs. There are actually I have some cassettes that people you know bootlegged mm-hmm. of that stuff. Holy that God. was kind of the beginning of the uh, of the baked potato band. Really, that's cool. Yeah. I have to give you my mailing address. <laughs> I know. <laughs> we'll talk about that offline, okay? Well, I don't know. I, li- I listened to it one day with Larry, and Larry said, we don't want to let this out because we, we actually sound pretty young. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, um, you know, you mentioned a second ago about Jeff Percaro and, and how, you know, on that particular Baked Potato Super Live recording, how, you know, you really got to hear him in his in his truest form. And, you know, as, as long as his discography is and as many albums as he's, you know, done over the years, that was a gem in a sense that you're right. You you didn't really get to hear him break out like that. Right. You know, and, and, and that was – it's pretty amazing to hear that. And, and you know, like I said, the other one might have been a Los Lobotomies recording, you know, several years later. Right. Listen, we've had several guests on Inside Musicast that know Jeff very well in, in the past and and uh, had some wonderful things to say about him. But t- tell us a little bit about your thoughts about Jeff and working with him. What was his, his nature when he'd, you'd play with him? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Jeff was a real whimsical – uh, he had this gleam in his eyes, mm-hmm. you know. Not that he was joking, but, it, you know, he dug life, you know. Yeah. And he didn't take things so serious. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, the best thing about Jeff was what he didn't play. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he laid down the groove, and um, he didn't try to overplay. And to me... It was almost like the space between his notes, uh-huh. like the space between his kick drum, <laughs> the, between neat. the two sixteenth notes, right. was larger than anybody else's. And now, now that can't physically be because there's only a certain <laughs> amount of space and time right. that you can do it. But it just seemed like there was more space in Jeff's playing than anybody I've ever heard. Hmm. You know, um, that's a cool comment and, and one that no one's ever really pointed out on this show, no, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well. You know the tune 335 off of the Larry oh, yeah. Carlton record, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, before we recorded it, we used to play it at the, uh, not at the Baked Potato, but at Dante's, this club that's not there anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, you know, the tune cycles around, and it, and it ends up in another key and going, dum, dum, bum, dum, dum, you know, with that figure. Okay. And Jeff would would play the backbeats. Uh, he would get off the drums and play the backbeat against the back wall. And just, you know, dump, 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 he hit the wall, bam, dump, 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 bam. Wow. And the whole club would just go nuts when he did that. <laughs> then he'd turn around, make this fill, and come back in, and, you know, the place felt like it was going to levitate. Uh-huh. That's cool. It's, it was something that I miss. Well, we're on the subject of great drummers. You also played a lot with uh, Carlos Vega. Yeah. And uh, similar thoughts and feelings with, with Carlos? Well, you know, Carlos used to come to those gigs, mm-hmm. and he was just a baby. I think he was 19 Jeez. or something, you know. Carlos was a special person, man, of, you know, and, and he brought a little bit more of the Latin side to things, right. you know. Um, and he was just um, a great drummer and a great person, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I miss him. I miss them both yeah. a lot. You know, since we've been on the subject of, of the baked potato and, and reminiscing about Jeff Percaro, Let's take a uh, quick break now and listen to a sample track from the Baked Potato Super Live project that was recorded at the Baked Potato in Los Angeles back in December of 1981. And this track is called The Spud Shuffle. (laughs) 
And that was a little sample there of the Spud Shuffle recorded back in 1981 at the Baked Potato. Uh, that performance featured Steve Lukather on guitars, Jeff Percaro on drums, Pops Popwell from the Jazz Crusaders on bass, and our guest on this episode of Inside Music Cast, Greg Matheson. We'll play with great rhythm sections like Abe Borial and Lee Sklar and drummers like Jeff and Carlos and guitarists like Luke and Larry and, and Lee Rittenauer. You know, uh, gee whiz, what a list of guys that you've played for. <laughs> I can't imagine you playing feel, with all these guys. I That's a cool blessed, thing. Yeah. But do you have different relationship with, you know, uh, on the stage with how you react, you know, as a keyboardist with the rhythm section and with your guitarist? What kind of a difference of nuances happen on stage with the rhythm as opposed to the lead guitarist? Can you talk to us a little bit uh, about that? First of all, you know, there's a there's a relationship between a keyboard player and a and a guitar player right. because you both got uh, chords. Yeah. So you both have to have big ears mm-hmm. and and know what the other person is is uh, is doing. So let's take for instance Mike Landau. Um, okay. When Mike Landau plays in my band, the Jazz Ministry, you know, he's basically deferring to to where I'm you know, where I'm putting the chord structure, you yes. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because I, I play a lot of rhythm kind of piano, mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't float a lot. I, I lay down a groove. Yeah. So he defers until it gets to his solo. Yeah. And then when it's his solo, he, uh, you know, I defer to him, you know, and uh, he might play major instead of minor, or he might play, you know, you just have to, you know... You, uh, it's it's a weird thing because to be a musician, you have to have a pretty strong ego, you know, mm-hmm. because you have to be confident. You right. know? Mm-hmm. But uh, to to play the kind of music and let the music flow, you also have to be able to give it up and say, "Oh yeah, you're going to go that way. Okay, let's right. go." You know, not no, I don't want to go that way. You know, yeah. you have to be able to give it up and let somebody take charge for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, leadership sort of changes hands in the course of a of a in the, in, in the course of a tune. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, it, in the course of a tune. Now, mm-hmm. now, let's say I play with his band. Mm-hmm. Now, when I play with his band, I, I, he's the leader right. until it gets to my solo. Yeah, <laughs> you I follow you, yeah. So, um, and, and his tunes are really strange because uh, a lot of them don't have any thirds in them. Hmm. So you could make it a minor tune or you could make it a major tune. So I'm kind of I'm always kind of like just kind of floating around. Yeah, and it fits. And, and he prefers that I only play B3 with right. him. Really? Which I think is a great uh, compliment to guitar. And speaking of that, when I play with Robin Ford, like, yeah. like for instance, he, play, he wants me to play mostly B3. Really? And when, when I play a blues with Robin Ford, I know that I need to keep it more traditional, mm-hmm. less bebop orientated. Mm-hmm. As, a, as opposed to playing on the road or playing a blues with Larry Carlton, where if I wanted to, I could... Take all. I could go to altered chord changes. Sure. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to know who you're, who you're playing with, and and what your function is. Right. Who's the leader? You yeah. know. But all those guitar players, when it comes to my solo, basically stay out of my way right. and try to add to me. And when it's their solo, you know, if they're if they're playing. You know, the blues is the easiest thing to talk about. You know, sure. if they if they start playing traditional blues, then I know what to play. Yeah, exactly. If they yeah. start going out, right. then I know what to play too. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm listening to them. They're the leader. You know, and usually, you know, that's a good uh, rule of thumb is to follow the soloist yeah. and yeah. let him go where you know where he wants to go. Cool. 
going to switch gears just slightly. You know, and, and when you decided to, to try your hand at producing, you hooked up with uh, Tony Basil and worked uh, her biggest hit, Mickey. And, right. You know, that, that song was, was huge back in the early 80s. And tell oh, me a little yeah. about your role in, in developing that particular song. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's funny. Uh, that tune was called Kitty. Kitty? Kitty. Yeah, it was called Kitty, and it was written by, and I forget, the, and you know, please forgive me, songwriters, the uh, <laughs> two famous songwriters in London, um, and it was one of the songs that they gave, and uh, Tony had this idea of incorporating cheerleaders. Okay. <laughs> um, and so she drug me down to Dorsey High School, mm-hmm. uh, which was in the ghetto, kind of black um, sure. high school. And uh, we went into the gym, and the cheerleaders did all their uh, their cheers for us. <laughs> and one was, uh, you know, uh, oh, Dorsey, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind, hey, Dorsey, you know. Really? Yeah. And, it w- and then I remembered, uh, I remembered those from, because when I was in marching band, now this is a long time ago, sure. but that, that, that uh, cheer had been around for a long time, okay. since I was in high school. Uh-huh. So then I, uh, that's what gave me the idea to incorporate it into, um, and, and make it, you know, hey, Mickey, you're so fine. Uh, we changed it, we, you know, because it was about a woman. Uh, she had to change the lyric to, and she chose the word Mickey mm-hmm. instead of Kitty. Uh-huh. Uh, and we and rewrote the lyrics. And then, um, then we actually had the Dorsey High School, uh, some of the Dorsey um, cheerleaders come to the studio, and we <laughs> built... Like a little, uh, you know, play, uh, you know, a little stage that we could mic underneath for their right. feet because of the stomps, right? And, and mic their hand claps and mm-hmm. actually try to do it, uh, you know, so so it had that the real sound of cheerleaders. Sure. Uh-huh. Well, how did how did you uh, initially hook up with uh, Tony Basil? Where, where was the connection there? Yeah. Well, uh, well, her manager was a guy named Brian Avnet, who was a really nice guy. Put us together. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, English money. It was uh, a private uh, benefactor in England that was that was paying for the record. Okay. So the 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 funny story is that after we finished that record, it got shopped all over the United States to every record company, and every record company turned it down twice. Really? Holy yeah. God. That's amazing. Could not get a deal for that record. <laughs> So then they went to London and they got a deal and it became a hit in London and then they started playing it as an import in the United States <laughs> and it took off and then finally I, I forget who, who got a hold of it and uh, and then of course everybody took credit for it. Yeah, everybody, exactly right. Exactly. Of everybody, all the record companies here said, oh yeah, I knew that was a hit all along. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and then of course the you know that was around the time when MTV was really coming into its own and, and videos were bigger than, than music right. itself and, and uh, that was a huge it was a huge video at the time. That was one of the first videos, yeah. It was just all the stuff was happening at the same time. Now, tying it back to Jeff Picaro, when I was making this record, you mm-hmm. know, uh, I think those guys were making one of their famous records in Toto. You know, Toto 4, around that time, yeah. Yeah, and, and I was... Uh, and I was listening to this kind of off-the-wall record I was making, you know. <laughs> and I kept thinking, God, I wonder what Jeff's going to think. Yeah, right. <laughs> are they going to mock me or what? Yeah, is he going to kid me or is he going to go, Greg, what are you doing, you know? But no, they were all happy for me. You know? Holy God, was, was that around the same time as uh, your uh, Laura Branigan uh, um, yeah, project with Gloria? It was, it, around the same well, time, what right? was funny about that was, see, I had done the Mickey album, um, 
You know, all of this was happening during, um, almost during the Baked Potato, I mean, when we recorded the album. Right. Too. So I finished her, Tony Basil, yeah. I mean, and I was going through a bad time. I was going through a divorce. And uh, Gloria had been a record uh, that was a huge hit that I had arranged for a guy named Umberto Tazzi <laughs> in Italy. And uh, it, the, the original song was Italian. And it, it, it was a much bigger hit around the world than Laura's was. Huh. And uh, I had done it in 1978. And so this German uh, producer came to me and and asked me if I would rearrange, you know, redo the song with Laura. And at that time, uh, because I was going through this divorce and stuff, I said, no, I'm, I, I'm, you know, I, I was like fed up. And I said, no, not unless you let me co-produce it. So he said, yes. Yeah. So then I co-produced it. Um, and we did it almost exactly the same. Jeez. And uh, I remember the engineer telling me, you know, you know, what's wrong with you, Greg? You've got to change it, you know? And I kept saying, man, it was a huge hit. I don't know why I should change it. And, uh, and so, so then the way it worked out was that, you know, uh, Tony Basil had been, um, had been being shopped. So uh, there was a delay in the release of that record, about a year and a half. And so when they were both, uh, when they both finally hit the charts in the United States, they were neck and neck. Mm-hmm. And so I'm one of the few people to have a number one and number two as a producer wow. in the same week. Oh, That's wow. Awesome. That was great. That's cool. I didn't and, know but, that. <laughs> but that was a fluke because I had done the records a year and a half apart. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I can't, can't take credit for it. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. It's what, it was just the way it was meant to be or something. I don't know, you know. Well, you know, up until that time when you started producing, you, you know, you had primarily been, you know, just you'd been playing. And, and it, it, tell me the challenges between switching roles from, you know, from being the musician, you know, uh, supporting acts or doing your own thing and then switching over and producing someone else. Well, you know, there's, you know, we're skipping through a couple things. You know, uh, I don't know if you know this, but like in the early 70s, I was on the, on the road with Helen Reddy. Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay. And then I was on. Then I switched and went on the road with Olivia Newton-John. Okay. Sure. okay. And then my friend Jay Graydon, uh-huh. we went to college together and had been, you know, really good friends. Kept saying, "Greg, you should stay in town. You know, you know, the record business is happening. You could start doing record dates." So in '78 is when I started. You know, I guess the end of '77, I started doing record dates, mm-hmm. and uh, I met David Foster and David Page. Uh, and they started uh, instantly started producing. So they recommended me as that as you know when people called them to, uh, to play on records. Right. If uh, if uh, they, I was like their first call mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, as a recommendation. So I went through a year or so, year and a half of nothing but um, playing record dates. Oh. But what there wasn't a transference. Then I met uh, Giorgio Marauder who was the guy that did all of the Donna Summer stuff. Okay. And um, I got called to go play all the music on Midnight Express, oh, the yeah. movie Midnight Express. Oh, oh yeah. But, oh, yeah. But, but not for the movie. It, it, was, uh, it was for the movie soundtrack. Right. So I had to take all these little 20-minute uh, uh, cues and make them into six-minute disco tunes. Um, and I had one of those days where I could not make a mistake. Jeez. I cut the whole album in one day. Wow. I played every part of it. <laughs> Seriously? And, um, and because of that, Giorgio took me to Europe, and I cut uh, some hits for the Three Degrees. Yeah. 
and then we came back, and he says, "Well, Greg, I want you to, uh, you know, uh, here's the here's the, some money, here's some tape. Go go cut the next three songs." So I actually got to. I didn't get credit for it, but I got to produce these three songs. So I kind of, you know, found my way into it. And then because, uh, then I did the Donna Summer record, which was a huge record, and uh, that vaulted me into becoming an arranger. Well, that was... Because everybody uh, knew I could arrange strings and horns. Is that uh, the... You, you worked on MacArthur Park. Park, yeah. Wow, that was... So a, that was a huge arrangement because, it, you know, it was sure. 28 strings and, you know, nine horns and French horns and mm-hmm. harp and choir. And, um, and, and so that turned me into an arranger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then for a year, I did nothing but arranging. Just mm-hmm. nothing but, you know, I stopped yeah, actually. No, well, I, I played on the dates that I did. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and I was an arranger. And then it, then it occurred to me that I was actually making the whole record. <laughs> and the producer was just sitting there taking credit for me, you know, or for it. So uh, it was an easy transition to go into producing. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you mentioned a little bit about, uh, and I want to just backtrack because it's we we probably it probably deserves a little bit more more time. But when you worked on Midnight Express, um, the the actual soundtrack, you did work on a soundtrack, right? I work in the soundtrack, but not the not the music not, that's in the movie. Gotcha. It's just the the, the it's, post. it's the record of it. Gotcha. Okay. And there were a couple minor disco hits from him. I can't remember what the titles are, uh-huh. but okay. if you heard them, you would know yeah. which okay. one they were. Absolutely. Okay. And I learned a lot from that pr- producer about because uh, he had all these far out uh, synthesizers that I had never dealt with before. You hmm. know. And synthesizers were coming in at that time. You know, mm-hmm. this was the you know I I had had my mini Moog, right? But he had all these exotic ones because he was coming from Europe. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it was an interesting, uh, you know, opened my eyes to a number of things. Well, speaking about technology, I mean, during the time, like you say, uh, the guys from Toto were, you know, producing Toto 4 and just afterwards, right around there is when Yamaha started, you know, delivering the DX7s and we started right. going into the digital algorithms type of, type of synth, you know, and then, right. and, 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 uh, you know, this, this totally changed, uh, the whole schematic as to, you know, those that were up with technology, they started producing a slightly different sound, right? That, that's right. And this, but don't forget that 1982 is, uh, 83 is, is pre-MIDI. Right. That's right, true. Right, right. That's true. So, so like, for instance, uh, on Gloria, when you hear that big stack of all those uh, synthesizers, yeah, yeah. it's me playing every part. Exactly. It's, layering, it's not yeah. me playing one part and then it triggering eight right. other synthesizers. Mm-hmm. It's me playing one synthesizer on top of another. You know, right. I had to play yeah. it eight times. So right. you were playing that Prophet 5 or whatever. What did we right. doing? You right. have to exactly. go ahead and play, play each one well, on And there was a Jupiter 8, I think. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, I actually physically had to play the part. Yeah. You know, I mean, sounds uh, back then didn't it sound more fatter? I mean, didn't yeah, it sound just it does, bigger? Because you can detune them because they're not so exact. Oh, I know. It's just uh, I, I've you know I've I just get so tired of hearing, uh, you know, people trying to stack one, two, three, four different uh, synth sounds and they don't detune. It just doesn't. It, it really sounds really harsh and really artificial. You know, right? But, well, not, and and don't forget that everything on that record was played. You know, because it wasn't yeah. sequenced. Yeah, exactly. But haven't you have have always had a I've noticed a, a real simplicity to your approach, the simple keys, a simple roads, a simple piano sound. Yeah. That I mean your approach is 
it's not necessarily a really confused sound. I mean, is that how you approach the digital tools also today? Well, I like things that are simple, you know. Yeah. Um, I like space. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why I love Jeff, because yeah. he left the space, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I like records that you can... Uh, I, I used to say that you could get up and walk around in, you know. Yeah. You know, you know that weren't uh, that aren't so cluttered, so you can hear right. the neat little parts. You know, right. mm-hmm. there's so many times that you can, you know, uh, that I've mixed records where I've overdone it, and there are parts that you will never hear that were my favorite parts. You right. know, uh, I always hate when I've when I've gone too far. You know. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I like space. You yeah. know. In regards to using, um, you know, a couple other tunes, your roads and and your B threes, uh, you know. Well, let me tell you a funny story about the, about the B three. Please, even though I played it in 1982, mm-hmm. you're right. The DX seven came in, and from about '84 on, uh, the B three was not an instrument that anybody was using at all. <laughs> I put it in my garage, you right. know. And then sometime in about '87, I got it out and I and I took it to a record date. And there was a young second engineer that, you know, came up and looked at this thing and said, what's this, you know? <laughs> how, do you, how do you mic it? <laughs> yeah, right. And I said, well, this is a Hammond B3. And he says, man, that sounds just like a DX7. <laughs> that's hilarious. I love it. God, man, that's cool. I Don't you love it, man? Uh-huh. <laughs> it reminds me of a... Of uh, of a story that Michael Mardian, when he was one of our guests, he <laughs> he he's flying on an airplane and he's uh, he said uh, this young guy asked him, you know, what what do you do for a living? Michael says, you know, well I'm a musician. He goes, oh really? What do you play? He goes, I'm a keyboardist. Oh, I'm a producer arranger. And he says, I'm a musician too. He says, well what do you play? He goes, I play drum machine. <laughs> he says, I, I play drum machine. Michael he looks forward and smiles and continues to read his paper. You know. <laughs> Isn't that funny how some people that is just funny. <laughs> Gee whiz. On your on your normal gigs when you do like live setups at uh you know the potato or wherever you're playing, how do those setups uh how do you arrange those real simplicity is I mean I know that you use a Kurzweil controller or a piano. What's your typical setup? Well, um lately I'm just uh because of Robin because in the last two years I've been playing with Robin a bunch and he got me back into playing a B three. And, and the problem with the B3, obviously, is that it's such a beast to move around, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, so lately, my favorite setup is just the Kurzweil on top of my B3. Yeah. Um, and uh, nothing's midied. The The last baked potato record, the one with both Abrahams on it, right. I, I was playing my Kurzweil, but it was going into a Hammond XM1, hmm. okay. um, which, is a, which was a, a one-space Hammond... Uh, digital Hammond-like box, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it had a lark with drawbars that sat on top of my... uh, So I could still move the drawbars. Sat on top of my Kurzweil, and then it actually had a connector that went to my 122 Leslie. So it was coming out of a 122 Leslie, you know? So it sounded real. Yeah, really. And and there was some... There's some neat things about that, because I I had two volume pedals. If I pushed one volume pedal down, it was B3. If I pushed one volume pedal down... It was piano, and if I had them both, I could be, you know, I could get a real big sound. That's awesome, right? Uh, but um, and I, I missed that a little bit. But uh, since I've been playing more and more B three, I really like the colors you can get when you when you're just a B three player. You know, yeah. I'm I'm uh, I'm 
uh, I'm threatening to make just a B3 album next uh, next year. Oh, I hope you do. They do a great yeah. job with that. That's neat. Tell us a little about the the new jazz ministry. It's you know that includes that killer lineup of of great guys, including you and Michael Landau and Abe Laboreal Senior and Junior. And uh, you got you have a live uh, double CD available on your website, and that was recorded with these guys back in 2005. And, and like you mentioned on your site, it it does groove hard. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the thing about um, <laughs> the thing about it is it's a really good listening band, uh-huh. and um, and it really does go different places every time we play. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it'll go double time and half time. The thing that we, we talked about originally, the thing that I loved about the Miles Band, that we all listened. And I, um, I've been trying to – my son has been going to Lama, which is the Los Angeles Music Academy, and yeah. Joe Picaro teaches there, and Ralph Humphreys. It's a, it's a real good school, and I've mm-hmm. and and we've talked to the kids about it and tried to get them uh, to listen. Um, and and I've been trying to explain what we do, and it's a hard concept to get across because you know people want hard and fast rules about well how do you, how do you know to change the groove at that time or how do you know to to go to halftime yeah. how do you you know. And I, it's something I can't really explain, but that but that particular band does it really well, mm-hmm. and and it's funny. You need all four musicians to be to be real strong ego players. I mean, have you know be solid in their in their own performances, but also be able to listen and give it give it up if somebody else wants to go that way. Say yeah, let's go this way, you know, or you know. Uh, the la- I wish I had a recording of the last gig we did. It's the best we ever sounded. Really? And oh, the yeah. band just played all these new, went to all kinds of new places in these songs. And uh, every time I... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Now you had another, you've got another album that you, you released, another live recording with primarily the same band, uh, with the exception of the drummer. I think right. you had Vinnie Caliuta at one point, and then now you've got Abe Jr. Um, is, it, is it primarily the same? Is you guys playing the same stuff? You've just. Well, uh, the reason why I, I did that was because I wanted to kind of show that we, that, uh, what I've been talking about, how, right. how we take the head and then, and then let's see where we're going to go and how the band, uh, uh, can change and how the songs can change, you know. Um, I got a little bit of criticism because we recorded some of the same songs. Uh-huh. But I really wanted to let, uh, you know, I, I know that Miles recorded some songs two or three times. Sure, right, right. And um, I wanted people to be able to hear how uh, things change when different players change. Absolutely. Sure, sure. You know, and Vinny just definitely brings a, another thing to it. You right. Know? And Vinny's amazing, you know. Oh yeah. <laughs> Technically, he's I uh, uh, has to be the best in the world. I saw Abe Jr. play um, the first time I ever saw him play was probably about seven or eight years ago at the Baked Potato, and um, he was playing. It was it was a gosh, what was it? It was Steve Lukather and uh, David Garfield and um, a couple of other guys. Lenny Castro was back there. It was Lenny Castro's birthday party. <laughs> Oh, great. <laughs> Basically. And, and it was the first time I saw Abe, and I just I looked at him sitting behind that small trap set he had, and I was just – I couldn't take my eyes off of him all night. He just yeah. – I mean, he was just complete feel. I mean, he just felt his way through the whole night, and it was just so fun to watch it. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, just amazing. Should, yeah. I wish you guys could have heard this last gig. I mean uh, – Oh, I would have wanted to be there. The, the whole band walked out of there so high because <laughs> it uh, – I mean, we, we went to other places that we'd never gone to, and mm-hmm. – we were all so excited that that happened, you uh-huh. know, because it's 
there's nothing worse than, you know, getting in a rut, you know. Eddie and I were close. We were we were talking about it. we almost had our plane tickets in our hand. Oh, okay. <laughs> For everybody's information, it was it was it was a recent. We're talking about a recent uh, uh, gig that uh, Greg did with uh, his friends. I believe it's Justo Almario. Um, oh sure. no no oh, no, no that was that other? gig, but. Uh, okay. But that gig was great too. <laughs> yeah, well, well, this one you're going to be recording with uh, with Husto and, and a couple other people, right? Right, Husto, Mario, and mm-hmm. Abraham Laboreal and Bill Maxwell. Bill We're going Maxwell. to make a uh, record in January. Oh, oh very cool. Yeah, That's cool. That's really cool. Go on, real quick, back to the jazz, new jazz ministry. Um, now, are you guys going to be uh, recording any new material anytime soon, or any thoughts about cutting uh, any material in a studio, or do you just consider the live performances the baked potato of your studio? Well, I think what's going to happen for me this year. I think uh, Abe Jr. is going to go back on the road uh, on the road with Paul McCartney. Okay. So that band for at least for six months or five months is going to go um, uh, is going to be non-existent. We might play something, but you know, uh, but it would have to be without. It would be maybe with Vinny if Vinny would like to come back and play, but I'm not sure what's going to happen. Husto um, and Abraham. And I and Bill Maxwell have this have this band that's a little bit more on the Christian music side, but mm-hmm. only because of the feelings that we have. Not not musically. It's not. Uh, I can't say that the music is Christian. Yeah. I'm just saying the intention behind it is correct. Is it more um, Cornelia so style? I think that mm-hmm. we're going to do that in January, and then um, I don't want to say, but there, there's somebody that you guys like that might want to produce me and do this, uh, this B3 album. Really? Okay. And we've been talking about doing that towards the middle or, or the end of this coming year. So that's kind of what I'm shooting for. Okay. That's wonderful. Hey, Greg, uh, before we dive into another topic, I want to take another quick break and sample a track from the new Jazz Ministry recording that was captured live at the Baked Potato back in 2005. And this is a track called The Sauce.
And that was a little sample of a track called The Sauce, which was recorded live back in 2005 at the Baked Potato by the New Jazz Ministry, which includes Michael Landau on guitars, Abe Laboreal Sr. on bass, his son Abe Laboreal Jr. on drums, and of course, our guest, Greg Matheson on keyboards. Hey, listen. I want to. Um, I'm I'm a big Al Jarreau fan, and okay. uh, and it goes back all the way to Gee Whiz. You know, the albums that he recorded. But there was one in particular one that's that's one of my favorites. It's called This Time, uh-huh. and uh, you played along, I believe, on this uh, on this album with Michael Marty and Jay Graydon, Jerry Hay, and and it had some really interesting, really interesting cuts. You know, uh, Never Given Up, Alonzo. Right. Do, do you recall any of this of this project, or is that like a, a little figment of a distant memory? Well, I, rem- I remember arranging "Never Give It Up." I yeah? mean, that the whole intro to that is is that was not part of the song, right? Really, where it says going, that yeah, that's hard. all me. I mean, really? I came up with all that. Really? Huh? Yeah. Was that your primary function? I know you played on the album. Did you arrange the album? Mm, I think I arranged two or three songs. I see. Okay. Um, and I think that that was one of his uh, first singles. Yeah, it was. Right. Yeah. But uh, if you really want to know some interesting stuff. Uh, when I met Al, um, he was playing at a club called the Blava Club. Mm-hmm. And I had a three-nighter with Al, just piano and uh, and voice. This is really one, something like that. And, uh, and then um, I did, uh, we did some like wedding reception gigs, <laughs> you know, because we're just trying to make money. And I remember playing at this wedding up in the Hollywood Hills, and I could see, it was in the afternoon, I could see the, the whole, uh, actually, valley. And he, he uh, after, the, after they pronounced the man a wife, we played better than anything, this song. <laughs> wow. And I remember bebopping along with, with Al singing, you know, <laughs> the way he does, and just me and him, and going, God, this is this is just great. You know? <laughs> and, uh, uh, oh, and then, yeah, he sang, um, what was it, uh, uh, the first time ever I saw your face. Yeah. While she was walking down the aisle, you know, and it was just me and him, and she was just blubbering, you know, oh you know just crying. <laughs> uh-huh. And and then I was in his band um, at a club down on Santa Monica. I think think it's still there. But anyway, I was in a band the the day uh, he got his record deal. That was that's neat. Um, and so we go like pretty far back. Yeah, because right after that, Breaking Away came up, and there was a few mm-hmm. others that was really put him on the charts. You know, right? And and cool. and, then, and at that time, see, he had a he had a band, and they kind of split up. And then I became part of his band. He got a record deal, and then we got booted, and he got he got his old band back together. Mm-hmm. Um, which at the time. Um, hurt my feelings, but it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because I probably would have just played with Al Jarreau for 20 years and not done a lot of the other things I did. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's funny how things work out. Yeah. Isn't it, though? Yeah. It is. Well, if I can tap back into your memory here again, um, Eddie and I have have a list here of about, you know, seven or eight different uh, albums that you've played on or been a part of and, and we'll just pick a couple here because in the interest of time but right. uh, just want to get your thoughts about if I, I'm just going to throw out the name of the album and who it was by and just wanted to get your thoughts about that particular session or, or something some interesting story about it and the first one off the top of my head is is uh, one of my favorite albums by Ricky Lee Jones Flying Cowboys yeah well um, 
you know, that was just a three-hour record date. I got called at the last minute, and they uh-huh. said, can you come and play Hammond B3? And it was an overdub. Uh-huh. And I came in and played my part, said hello, and... Uh, <laughs> Holy cow. And which, goodbye. Which track? Which track did you play? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, that's neat. And the next one here, uh, how about this one? Uh, the Longest Road, Seals and Crofts. Any recollection of this project? Uh, yeah, Seals and Crofts. Um, they had a... A really neat studio out in San Fernando, which is where I grew up. It was the, you know, the I don't I don't know if you know Los Angeles, but yeah, San Fernando is kind of like the Mexican hood. Yeah, you know. Okay. And and I had grown up out there, and they had this um, this studio called Dawnbreaker. Yeah. And um, I forget the producer's name, but he was a really nice guy, a guitar player, hmm. and had really good arrangements. And uh, I actually did a lot of work, other than because uh, they had a label kind of. I did a number of work for them, and, and it was always a great time, and they were always really good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were of the Baha'i faith, which mm-hmm. I had, didn't know a lot about, uh-huh. uh, but they were real respectful, and it was always a, it was always a good time. Yeah. And the studio was an excellent um, studio. It had some weird board in it where I think the faders worked backwards. Holy cow. Uh, you, know, <laughs> up was, you know how up is louder? Yeah, yeah. Well, these were the other way around. You pulled them towards you to make them louder. Jeez. <laughs> kind of like flying an airplane. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I want to throw out another album, and this is an interesting one. And I know you're credited on it, but I don't know what you did or what, what you did with this. But uh, Billy Idol's Vital Idol. <laughs> well, um, I met the, the producer um, through Giorgio Marauder. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, and... Uh, uh, so we had a uh, he he had played drums on everything that I had done through Giorgio, and so uh, he knew that I played B three, and uh-huh. it was that same kind of thing. Um, they called me in and asked me if I would play uh, B three on it, and I think I played two or three songs. And uh, uh, I don't know if you know it, but Billy is not at all like y- you would think he he is. Yeah. You know? he's, he's just a straight ahead guy. Right. Right. <laughs> That that look and that mean tough thing is you know oh, for sure. part of the image you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. but uh, you know he was a great guy and cool. we you know I went in and I think it was another you know four or five hour date and uh, and had a good time and left yeah oh very cool I want to I want to hop over to one last uh, track and it's actually uh, a, a, an album it's it's actually your album West Coast Groove yeah. beautiful album it's it just grooves California style I can't say it's I love the first cut the QTN your B by the way your B three work on that is amazing it's beautiful okay but you know what that is that's What's that? QT Pie. It's pie. Ah, QT pie. Yeah. yeah, I get it. That's the pie sign. Gotcha, man. Was, <laughs> I sucked in math. Okay, I really sucked in math. If you guys are going to try to teach me at this time, you guys are ab- just abandon the boat because uh, I'm not there. Okay, got a cutie pie. N That's equals, beautiful. Yeah, n equals three point one four. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> Gee whiz, you guys. Are... Or e e equals mc squared uh, plus or minus one dv. All right. <laughs> Next subject: biology. I'll tell you guys up there. Okay. 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 <laughs> beautiful B three work. You know, you did Thank real you, nice, man. and uh, I, I just, uh, uh, I, I just appreciate this project. Uh, one, one track that really comes to light is, I believe, was it Bill Champlin that uh, did yeah. the vocals on "Take Your Time"? Yeah, "Take Your Time." Really smooth. He, he Talk cut, to us. He cut all those vocals in about four hours in my bathroom at my studio. Are wow. you kidding me? 
I, I, I had it all voiced out, and I would just I would play him one part, and he he'd sing it, and then I I play him the other part, and he'd sing it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's just amazing that he can play those kind of close harmonies yeah. or or odd intervals, you know, yeah. and and sing them so in tune, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and and we literally did that. We did that whole tune in about five or six hours. Oh my gosh! All smooth. the vocals, and there's like eighteen tracks of vocals. Wow, that that is such a smooth, nice, nicely paced groove, man. And, and you know, it just it just got a nice feel to it. So I I thought I'd bring that up. It's it's pretty cool. Well, thank you, man. Um, whatever happened, you worked on a project uh, with Lee Rittenauer, his Rit album. Right. In which Eric Tag did vocals on two songs. Of course, One of them was, of course, the famous Is It You. Right. And he did also Dreamwalk. And whatever happened to Eric Tag? Well, you know, I think Eric uh, moved to someplace like Phoenix, I want to say, and got out of the music business. Really? really? Yeah. Um, now, I, I know he came back into it and went out of it, but he started a landscaping business or something, you know. Really? Um, and I, I want to say Phoenix, but it could be, it's somewhere like that, you know, in, a, uh, in that part of the country. Look know? at that. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I was just curious. Yeah. I know a lot of people ask about him. <laughs> what a talent. Yeah, yeah I no idea. real talent. <clears throat> Well, hey, Greg, it's it's the start of a new year, and I'm sure you have a lot of gigs and projects starting to line, line up. You've already mentioned a couple to us, but, you know, outside of what you've told us, do you have anything else lined up? What kinds of projects, you know, that you, that you might know about that you'll be working on in 2008? Well, uh, aside for the two albums that I'm going to do for myself, um, the guy, uh, remember I told you that I cut Gloria yeah. Yeah. In, um, in the Italian language. Well, he, he's still a really great friend of mine. I've, I've cut maybe eight or nine albums that you guys have never heard because they're all in Italian uh, that were huge hits. And, and uh, he's now free from his record contract, and because of the way the music business is now, he's starting his, old, his own label, Neat. and he wants to re-record some of his masters, um, and we're talking like maybe 40 or 50 songs. Wow. Wonderful. So uh, we're going through his, his material and trying to figure out the best way to do that, whether to do it, do it there or do it here. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the major thing that's going to happen in, in the next couple of months. Well, congratulations. Any, uh, just quickly, any other live gigs that you have coming up? This podcast airs originally on, on uh, January 4th. Anything after January 4th that you okay, know? Okay, well, we'll be at the Baked Potato with uh, Jazz Ministry on the 17th. Oh, cool. There we and go. that's the first night of NAM. Oh, okay. So that should be, a, should be a packed house. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, there are some gigs with... Um, uh, I'm not sure about yet, and uh, we should leave them alone. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. <laughs> okay. Well, Greg, thanks so much for spending all this time with us and, and giving us all this great information and, and, and uh, spilling all the beans. No doubt. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> We've enjoyed every minute of it. Okay, Greg? Yeah, me too, man. Perhaps <laughs> we can catch up sometime in, you know, down the road and, and see what else is happening. And if you're in town, give me a buzz. Oh, Sounds definitely. Sounds good. Definitely. Hey, thanks a lot, okay? Okay. Happy We're, New Year. Happy New Year, man. All right, bye-bye. Thanks once again to Greg Matheson for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. 
Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at InsideMusicCast.com. 